Welcome to Alternative Perspectives, a podcast by Alter, which is the Center for Applied Law and Technology Research at Vidhi Center for Legal Policy. My name is Zai, and this is the first episode that our team is doing. We really hope you like it. But in the same way that we quite naturally use around the clock the internet, um, it is just as natural for us to see the internet as a global, truly global network, where geographical distances are largely irrelevant. Um, flows of data and information link up cities, link up um, countries and continents, and technically speaking, um, geographical distances, um, however, that need to be crossed through a worldwide net of underwater cables, for example, still play a role because a large part of um, data flows, for example, and data links between North and South America um, actually take place through the landing station in Fortaleza. That was a simultaneous English interpretation of German Chancellor Angela Merkel speaking at the Internet Governance Forum in 2019. Nowadays, it has become fairly commonplace to hear policymakers speak about data, artificial intelligence, and platform monopolies. You also increasingly hear policymakers speak about the digital economy, which is having data and data-related technologies underpin economic activity. And these are all very important and urgent discussions to have. But we thought that in this episode, we could look at the hardware that makes the digital economy possible. If data is the ethereal determinant of this economy, its material backbone consists of data centers, undersea cables, network towers, semiconductors, lithium, graphite, and so on. How do the markets for these materials and this infrastructure affect the software and platform markets we now know well? How does global politics affect these markets? And how can learning more about hardware and material resources allow us to look at concerns of competition in new ways. We will try to answer all these questions today through two examples. We'll speak of things that sound super technical and boring, namely semiconductors and lithium, but which are embedded in global trade, monopolies, and yes, also in war. First up is semiconductors. These are materials that power nearly all modern computation and communication. They are necessary to run our smartphones, computers, all intelligent devices, and even cars. But since I have no training in actual technology, I've called a guest on to the podcast. Sutit Vaidya is the founder and CEO of Predable, which is a technology company that uses AI for health imaging, especially in radiology. Hi, Sutit. Welcome. Hi, Great to be here. And, uh, really looking forward to talking to uh, you about all things semiconductors. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice to have you here and thanks for joining us. So I suppose let's get started with the very basics. What's a semiconductor? Uh, semiconductors yeah. are basically materials that are um, somewhere between, um, say, a metal, which is like a perfect conductor uh, of electricity yeah. and an insulator, right? Uh, so uh, uh, plastic or glass that doesn't uh, conduct any electricity at all. Semiconductors are... Uh, have a conductivity that's somewhere between you know, between an insulator and a uh, and a conductor uh, like a metal um, and and basically what uh, how why the, why this is so important is because uh, some of these materials the most commonly used semiconductor is is silicon and these materials you can manipulate by by adding different kinds of impurities um, you know you use a process called doping um, and this basically means that you could get, uh, you know, these kinds of materials to to um, conduct and and do different kinds of uh, 
you know, and, and embed them into different kinds of components uh, by inducing different kinds of electric fields, magnetic fields. What that means is that you can control when they conduct current and when they yes. don't, right? Yes, yes, yes. So, I mean, why are they so crucial to computers? So, so basically, um, uh, in somewhere around the 1950s, right, um, there's, there was a, a, a transistors, a, a component called a transistor came into being. And then these transistors were basically these circuits that were made out of semiconductors. Um, and what you could basically do using a transistor was that you could basically implement um, logical operators. Right. Till then, most electrical circuits were, um, you know, could only do what in mathematical terms could do linear operations. Right. You could add current to another. You could, you know, uh, you know what we could call uh, linear operations. You couldn't really mm -hmm. implement logic. So if you wanted to do an AND uh, operation, an OR mm -hmm. operation uh, and things like that, you could you could not really implement them. Uh, but these transistors, by virtue of them, you know, using the properties of semiconductors, uh, you basically uh, could implement um, logical simulation, right? And this is basically, you know, um, then became the basis for for computing in general, right? Because typically, because right. every line of code that you write today is is being processed by a transistor um, somewhere, um, and that's basically what's led to you know the computing revolution. Um, and so initially, it was just like one transistor, a few transistors. Um, that that um, you know that were being used uh, and you could write these very small programs and very small uh, applications but what later happened is that you could start uh, basically putting together these transistors uh, by the millions and billions into one chip mm. right so you'd call you'd call it an integrated circuit conductors not just for the compute the compute is the most mm. you know uh, important piece of uh, important component in that uh, but obviously, uh, no compute is possible unless you have memory. You need data to work with. So memory um, is, is sort of the other biggest, bigger piece or the big piece of where you use semiconductors. All kinds of memory from storage um, and, and the entire stack. So, so uh, But the way artificial intelligence works is that you have typically um, parameters in the millions and each of these million parameters need to be uh, need to be computed. For artificial intelligence, you use a compute environment called a GPU. Um, so a GPU is stands for uh, a graphic processing unit, and a GPU was 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 actually initially uh, like the name suggests. It was actually developed for usage to render graphics. Uh, it primarily found a lot of interest traction in the gaming industry. Um, and any place where you needed a good amount of rendering. A CPU is, is more of a general purpose computing device. Right? So a CPU could compute all, could run all the applications it was optimized to for general processing and not specifically, you know, uh, optimized for uh, very, he very heavy computer or very, uh, or, or huge amounts of parallel uh, processing which was the case in what GPUs needed to do. Um, and so these CPUs turned out to be very slow for, for a lot of these applications that GPUs were required for, which is in gaming and, and video and animation. Uh, they started tapping into uh, these processing units uh, to use for um, all these mathematical operations. 
so suddenly you could uh, you could uh, use what gpus are always optimized for and you can use them to optimize these these deep neural network algorithms and that that was a you know huge breakthrough that happened in in 2012 um when when the first you know sort of published work that came up came about um you know challenge called imagenet uh, where someone basically a uh, scientist in canada called alex krizovsky basically used uh, uh, an nvidia card uh, at the time a gpu a, a gaming card uh, to basically train uh, to basically develop or train a very large neural network uh, to identify images so i mean you mentioned nvidia so let's talk about uh, who makes these semiconductors right as far as i know a lot of the production happens in china south korea taiwan japan or at least by companies located in these countries and china also happens to be the world's largest semiconductor consumption market so that's an interesting aside on china's position in the digital economy something on the hardware side that we don't usually hear about but in september this year one announcement created major waves in the industry which was that nvidia had closed a deal to purchase arm from softbank for 40 billion us dollars so so the last time we spoke you were quite upset about this acquisition uh, can you walk us through what nvidia does what arm does and why you were upset so um so nvidia as we all know they started off as a as a gpu manufacturer they were uh, big on the gaming industry so while most while the rest most of the industry used an open source um library for how you wrote programs to process uh, on on gpus um it was called the open gl uh, it was called an open gl uh, library and it was primarily intended towards you know uh, rendering graphics and 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 you know all kinds of gaming instructions and applications what nvidia did uh, and which was pretty smart was to approach the entire thing from a mathematical perspective and they had all these libraries and functions which which enabled you to write basically mathematical operations and run them on the gpu right okay. and this later served them very well when you know people from other industries uh, very specifically uh the uh, you know deep neural network research or the artificial intelligence research industry uh wanted were looking for means of of running such huge compute they could then use this coda library uh to implement uh you know deep neural networks right mm-hmm. um and this basically gave nvidia an edge like no other so uh suddenly they had this proprietary library that was basically built as a means to interface with their cards um and okay so and you had to like pay to use the library or it was just you, proprietary it was just proprietary in the sense uh, uh, it was just proprietary in the sense that you needed the cuda library um to to in order to just be able to access and use the card okay right so okay, if, you it, card, right. if you had the card if you had the card you have to install a driver so the software layer of how you run these instructions and how it's optimized on the gpu and how it, all that is run is basically a software layer that um nvidia controls um right. and and when the other there could be other gpu cards which have similar hardware infrastructure hardware architectures um you know they're simply not compatible because we do not know how it's implemented it's not open source they won't even have access to that library to make it work on on right. on an alternative card so this is where things get interesting so right so so 
for the last few years um, uh, nvidia has uh, they rode on this entire gpu wave and they've established their dominance into ai and ai primarily today if you look at it uh, ai runs on the cloud um, and it also runs on you uh, and also runs on 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 sort of heavy workstations um hmm. it doesn't as of now ai is not reached uh, a level at which that you could still optimize it um, and this is where things get interesting because if you look at the market right uh, you have intel on one side um, and they have hmm. intel intel back in the day around when integrated circuits came about um intel came uh, intel um, came up with this instruction set called the x86 instruction set um and what this x86 instruction set is 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 that um it basically allowed anyone to be able to write um write an application that that worked on their uh, you know integrated circuit right mm-hmm. and this x86 is basically an instruction set that's optimized for um, for general purpose uh, and and uh, and can and will handle you know multiple different kinds of optimization optim uh, operations in a single line of code right um, it was okay. it was at 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 early in the day you know it was just about performance 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 so power was not really yeah. that big an issue right so parallel yeah. to intel's x86 there were lots of other groups that were looking at uh, a more simplistic you know um, more simplistic instruction set so arm is basically has had been working and has been working for a very long time on on processors which use a simpler instruction set um and and this is called a reduced instruction set and and these are basically much faster uh, micro operations that you could do and they take drastically much lesser power to compute um and and uh, and basically you have companies like qualcomm samsung apple all these guys who basically uh then started licensing arm's arch- uh, arm's architecture designs and uh, and start build start building processors using uh, using arm uh, using the arm architecture and this is now you know this is now taken over the world so literally every tablet every phone irrespective of which manufacturer you get your phone from is powered with by an arm processor uh, they are oh. the most power efficient Uh, from a business model perspective arm is very different from intel because arm doesn't manufacture their chips they just license the design and then uh, other right. companies like samsung or qualcomm all these guys will will then uh, take uh, you know license the design they will uh, they, they might make modifications that they deem fit they have you no know, different kinds of relationships with these organizations and they work together and 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 sort of design a chip that meets their requirements so then you are saying that these companies like apple and so on with the merger are they now worried that their licensing conditions might change or is it is it that they are worried that the prices will increase correct 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 so if you look at um, uh, if you look at the general uh, uh, the general culture of how nvidia has grown and how they've been so proprietary about uh, their software layer um obviously uh, all the other many of the companies that uh, they are talking to um, could end up becoming um, their competitors or they could you know very well uh, start making more and more things uh, proprietary um, they do not need to continue working on the same licensing model right um, arm has become such a huge force right so so you have nvidia who is big in the ai industry 
you have intel that's become big in the cpu industry and and until date arm was just huge in 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 mobile phones and laptops i'm oh, sorry mobile mm. phones and tablets but now you are seeing um, arm becoming huge in um, in even laptops if you okay. saw last week's announcement if you saw last week's announcement on uh, on the new apple macbook uh, the yeah. new apple is is a new processor so the macbook is actually doing away with the intel processor and their new line of macbooks only have all have arm powered processors which is which is first yeah. of all kind of huge validation of how powerful the arm processor now is and so now you have uh, in the hands of yeah, nvidia you have this huge ai monster um, who's who's sort of this guard well guarded and secretive about how they build technology and take it to the world you know join hands or or acquire this other beast of a company that's going to be- become a real force in in uh, in general processing not just pcs but laptops uh, um yeah. so you're looking you're staring at a uh, at a at, at what is going to be the next big behemoth of computing and and this is someone who has um, you know has been unfriendly with open source movements like linux so i can guess uh, that this has a direct impact on you as an ai startup right yes i mean uh, arm acquisition uh, we'll have to see just in general i think we are already at ai startups like us are already at the at uh, the mercy of companies like nvidia for all our computing needs yeah whether the computing whether the compute comes from a cloud or whether we run it on premise to our own servers unless i think the world comes up with a uh, with an open source alternative Yeah thank you so much for joining us I think I learned a lot and uh it was really nice having you here Thank you so much for having me and uh we are part of this discussion today In this second segment we talk about the connection between electric vehicles and a coup in Bolivia Listen to this part from a question Elon Musk answered at an event a couple of years ago Will there be enough is there enough lithium supply in the world to enable you to build everything that you ambitiously want to build in the next few years at an affordable price. I mean the, the, I mean the, the nice thing about lithium is it's extremely abundant on earth. Um I mean lithium is the third most common element in the universe. Um and I mean the reason we don't have just free hydrogen available is because it's bound up in water. Um and then the reason we don't have a lot of helium is because it floats away. Uh but um but lithium does not float away and um and so it is it, there's lithium in in salt form virtually everywhere why is musk being asked about lithium elon musk's company tesla makes electric cars these run on lithium ion batteries musk is right that lithium is abundant but processing it is not easy and large sources of lithium still matter what if someone told musk that there was a cheap and abundant source of lithium somewhere and what if suddenly that source was closed off to him The world's biggest sources of lithium are in South America, primarily Argentina, Bolivia and Chile, and in Australia. Musk wanted Bolivia's lithium, but Bolivia didn't want to give it to him. We're calling another guest to discuss this with, Anish Radhakrishnan from People's Dispatch. Anish has been covering people's movements all over the world and has studied the situation with Tesla and Bolivia closely. Hi Anish. Hello there. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so tell Thanks us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us how did Bolivia get caught up in Elon Musk's ambitions? Uh 
Well, see, one of the first things that we need to understand is that obviously there are no direct uh, thing, uh, direct connections that can implicate Musk in the Bolivian coup. Uh, mm-hmm. But we did have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, correlations that were not that that were too good to be true. You know, it was just. Uh, it just it was an accidental it was happening at a very it coincided with certain events so the first thing that gave away the game was when the coup actually happened in november last year and uh, immediately after that i think on the second day or the first day i, I, I might be wrong but uh, tesla's stocks went up dramatically and mm. that was in general seen as like this uh, uh, you know, an opening that could have given access to Bolivia's lithium resources, which, as you rightly said, uh, requires investment. It requires, uh, uh, you know, foreign technology because Bolivia doesn't have the capabilities to actually mine that ore. So Tesla is one of the major, uh, you know, people or uh, investor that has been vying for this mineral. And it does not come as a surprise that when the coup actually happened, it, they were the ones who were celebrating it. And over, over a period of time, we saw the tweet, we saw several statements which were talking about uh, opening up uh, their investment in Bolivia. So it was these were not like accidental uh, coincidences. Uh, these were very proper uh, cause-related correlations that were happening. And in that sense, uh, Bolivia b- became like this center of a global, like it is still the center of the global uh, technological revolution that is going to happen with the development of the electric cars. Uh, but it does it does want to do it on its own terms. Why, why was the coup necessary? Couldn't uh, Tesla have just bought the lithium from Bolivia? Uh, it wasn't easy because uh, there were two factors at play. Because first of all, uh, the Bolivian government under Morales uh, made it necessary that any company that is trying to uh, mine for lithium in Bolivia will have to cooperate with the nationalized uh, companies, the public sector companies that they had. So, of the two uh, companies that were primarily uh, involved in mining lithium. Uh, one will be YLB. Uh, uh, I'm not going into th- how to pronounce the the Spanish yeah. name for that, but uh, it's called YLB. That is the primary national lithium company. And mm-hmm. then uh, there's the Comibol, which is mm-hmm. the overall mining company. Both of them are the ones who have who have the rights to mining uh, lithium mm-hmm. in the region. Now, uh, the thing is that you have to, first of all, make a, a, an agreement where profit sharing has to be done with these companies. Secondly, there was also a social movement on the ground that was more or less autonomous from the government. There was a, a, a contract that was signed, uh, I think, uh, a couple of years ago with Germany's ACI systems which was actually to get lith- uh, you know, lithium to be mined so that investments can come in, technologies can be developed, all of that. Uh, but there was a massive protest in the region, uh, just the Salar de Uyuni region, 
uh, where you have a, a, uh, the estimates are that you have about 50 to 70 percent of global lithium source and mm -hmm. this uh, this region is also largely populated by uh, indigenous native americans uh, and these people see mining as a threat to their land to their environment and to their cultural heritage which is tied to that land so all of that uh, led to the massive protest which actually led to the deal being cancelled uh, last year uh, china had uh, entered negotiations certain chinese companies had entered negotiations with ylb on profit sharing and on how investments were to be uh, put in how the mining will also happen and on what amount all of that uh, was still in a very preliminary process when the coup actually happened so it became it made uh, it necessary for companies that wanted complete control over the investments that they are making to not have this government and this government was you know wildly popular in bolivia as well it was winning elections after elections so overnight you had this massive um, protest happening uh, largely uh, sub supporters of several right wing groups who wanted to get rid of morales uh, the you know the plurinationalist policies that that were in place uh, the policies that protected indigenous land all of that because they saw that as a aberration to a certain kind of christian fundamentalism mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not getting into that too much uh, it's a very complex domestic hey. political process okay. yeah because uh, we we actually at people's dispatch covered it throughout the year and we still haven't uh, barely have scratched through the surface so even in that uh, you had coup happening overnight the military entering uh, and you know the whole classic uh colonial or imperialist uh police uh you know machinations were happening all all over again we were seeing the same things we have seen in different countries like we saw in iran under muzadegh we saw in chile uh in other parts of the country like you can actually uh, keep counting the number of countries around the world and all of them have had similar experiences when they have decided to keep their national resources nationalized you know so coup made it uh coup was imperative in that sense to make this happen to make give more access to these resources so can you give a very brief description of how uh, consent was manufactured for the coup just so people are aware in bolivia there was always this uh, a slight a more divided partisan society Mm -hmm. uh you have the largely so most of the country have uh, you know very immediate indigenous ancestry so mm -hmm. the the population of indigenous uh, americans in bolivia or indigenous bolivians uh is not very is very vague the estimates range from anywhere between 30 to 70% so because many of them are uh, recently into uh, you know how do i call it uh interracial uh, or multiracial uh generations so mm -hmm. even in that you have certain divisions happening uh depending on your class so this is already a divided society that was in effect and moreover outside of bolivia there was uh 
the story that was manufactured, which was to say that the coup uh, was necessary because Morales was subverting democracy, hmm. uh, which is like if once you say that out loud, uh, it it would seem very ridiculous. But that really just that is how it was. Uh, spent by several uh, international mainstream media. You had the New York Times, you had the Washington Post, all of them talking about how the elections were manipulated based on testimonies from opposition right-wing groups, uh, certain exilees, and some of the government machinery, which by that time was taken over by the military. Um, over time, we realized after multiple research from different people, including a team from NYU and Columbia University in the United States, that the manipulation is not really is an exaggeration. There were certain voting inconsistencies that was normal for any democratic system. Like you hmm. have certain invalid votes coming up. You have certain votes that were... Uh, that were missed out and the, mm. it was not in a scale that they were making it out to be. What mm. what, what triggered this whole thing was a counting delay because mm. there was uh, certain technical issues because of which counting was delayed by I think about uh, 12, 15 hours after which it was resumed. But be between that period, in that period, you had these right-wing protesters taking over ballot uh, booths and counting booths and burning down ballots even in certain places, including in cities like Cochabamba in La Paz. And all of these uh, were not really that covered because mm. if there is there was real manipulation, it was the fact that ballots were being burned in that, in that time, on that day. And that was not something that was very widely covered, as was the alleged manipulation of votes, which never really happened. And it was proved um, in different arenas, uh, for, especially for the Western world. It is unthinkable to imagine somebody who has won elections four times already and uh, is was set to win a fifth time. And this was something unthinkable for their democracies, where they were. It was outlined by term limits and all of the other things. Um, right. In this case, Morales was democratically elected. It was just that he had a 14-year-old government already in, behind him with a long history behind that and how that happened. So this was happening in a way uh, where you can actually look at it as pin doctors of imperialism uh, when the media, the way the media played its role. They yeah. have actually uh, spun around certain narratives that were not really... Uh, very valid. They are yet to apologize for that or retract their statements or their reporting for that matter. And they have made, they have legitimized the whole coup as a way to protect democracy, which was ridiculous by any standards to think about. But it happens. Right. So eventually the coup was defeated and Gianni Nanez, who, who was the person who was installed afterwards, and who ran an incredibly repressive government, she was forced to hold elections and she lost them. And Evo Morales' party is back in power and Evo is back in Bolivia to much celebration. Um, what does this mean for Elon Musk? 
the promise of the coup government that Anyas uh, took over was mm. that it will happen in a few months, maybe three or four months. They kept repeatedly delaying the elections over time uh, because multiple opinion polls have showed that whatever the election results be, uh, Morales's party, which is the movement towards socialism, is going to be at the forefront. And any candidate that they put up will be the forerunners of that election. So there was significant delays. We have to understand that it happened a year later, even though the whole point was that the transition towards democracy will happen within months. Mm -hmm. And it happened only because of massive social movements coming together, not just uh, in support of uh, the movement towards socialism, which is the MAS party, but also uh, in de for democracy in general. If you look at the election results, it was a landslide. That never happened. That hasn't happened in Bolivia in the last two decades. So that was a massive mandate against the coup itself. Um, so the ent so the return of Morales back to Bolivia or the return of the MAS party to power shows that the people are now very much in support of the policies that were in place already mm. and which would mean that any company including Elon Musk's company would have to uh, negotiate on the terms that Bolivian government sets for them the, the, the Bolivian people sets for them and it has to be on a very fair equitable basis now that is something that is not very profitable the interview that you showed it actually shows how they are trying to make it as if it wasn't a very big deal for them to begin with or that they were they will be looking for other places to mine lithium but the very fact remains that a majority a veritable majority of the lithium reserves is in bolivia so you can't really avoid that. You will have mm. to deal with the government's uh, nationalization policy, its protectionist policies. You'll have to deal with the social movements on the ground who have a bigger say right now in how the mines are uh, constructed, how the mining will happen to begin with, and how the land will be used. So it shows a certain victory a very rare victory i would have to add because no at no point in history has a coup government been ousted with an election that that hasn't happened in recent memory to be honest so yeah, this, yeah. so this was a very momentous history in both ways to the to the global markets which were looking and you uh, you can actually see how the markets fell uh, several companies not just Musk, tesla but also apple and other Tech, uh, technological giants, their stocks fell immediately after the elections. And that showed how uh, the markets look at, uh, at democracy in general, especially in the third world with huge uh, resources uh, underneath their land. Right. So, that, so that, is, that is what the implication would be. It will have to be on a fair, equitable basis. Anybody who has to mine lithium will have to do it uh, on the terms that the Bolivians set for them. There's no other way around it now. Okay. I, I also read that Tesla's battery day in October this year was confusing to all those who attended. Um, they said Elon Musk showed a lot of dreams, but not enough specifics. Uh, he, he also talked about a new way of extracting lithium from clay deposits in the U.S. 
and while that sounds like he has another option the catch is that no one yeah no one has been able to do this at scale before so he might not be able to do that either so i i suppose it's a huge victory for the bolivians in any case i think this shows us that while we talk about digital colonialism as we should a lot of the development of emerging technology is also dependent on you know good old imperialism yeah, and exactly. similarly violent ways of resource extraction bolivia paid a huge cost for its successful resistance we should watch out for other resources that are crucial to emerging technologies and preserve the agency of countries and workers in those countries that are rich in these resources thank you so much anish for joining us it was great talking to you thank you for having me we hope you found this episode interesting i think the point we have tried to make is that whether it is semiconductor markets or lithium technological development and use cannot be divorced from geopolitics and the global economic trends that shape this geopolitics do drop us an email or tweet to us if you have thoughts about this topic and see you next time